We all tell ourselves stories of who we are and why. But we forget that we have the power to define them. That no idea grows from mewling striped cum to teeth at your throat, tiger, without a little help, some guidance, and a whole lot of love along the way. I am Jeremy Surf, and this is Here Be Tigers. Hey all, today we're sharing part of a live stream episode we did for our patrons back in 2020, when we were tasked with creating a world in which other tales could be made, using only the premise, who built the ruins which now lie in waste. Julia Meyer co-host, Dave, layout the concept for the world, and then our panel will have a chance to make it grow from the simple and mundane into the new, the unique, and the strange. So join us as we look back to a different stone or bronze age, the folks who create, and the maddest of kings, who in bull wizards would put their faith. We hope you enjoy. Hello, everybody, and welcome to a live stream. This is an impromptu world-building live stream that we have set up on the Here Be Tigers Discord uh, for the show Otter Worlds. This will, if it works well, be the first of a number of them. Here we wanted to get people together to brainstorm and to demonstrate uh, world-building techniques and that kind of thing. The core idea is one I started working on the other week. How it started is a is is kind of silly because I was thinking back to like this one-off thing in the old 4E, which was all about, oh, there have been empires in the past, but now you're living in this world where there are small pockets of civilization and large stretches of wilderness and ruins everywhere. And where do the ruins come from? And we're probably all familiar with the idea of just making them up as we need them for a game, which makes a lot of sense. But what, you know, each ruin could also have a history. It could also be a part of some major element of the game. And so I just started thinking, okay, what were, what could be the empires of this world? And I started breaking down. Here are some of the eras that there could have been empires. These would be the characteristics and these would be the people's. And then from there, it was like, well, this should be opened up to um, a lot of minds and not just my own. And so here we are. The basic ideas behind this world are, again, making empires in various ages. Some of the things I wanted to do in this are start with a, a couple of basic populations. And for those, I have chosen four. Humes, Hobbs, Fen, and Tals. I've got the descriptions uh, in the document that I handed out. But for those who are listening to this after the fact or don't have access to the document, humes are your basic human, humanoid. They tend to thrive near rivers, lakes, and shorelines. Hobs are very much a proto-goblin type. They'll be what gives rise to hobgoblins and other goblin variants. They're starting out to the extent that they were nomads of the hills and plains. To think of pretty rough-looking hobgoblin, that's what they look like. Uh, the fen are like deep forest creatures, relatives of the hobs, long and angular. They're essentially proto-elves, more on that in a moment. And the talls are fairly large and bulky, 
uh, humanoids that are well suited to the cold of the mountains and the north. It should be obvious. I pulled the name from Neanderthal. I want to point out because these guys are going to give rise to the orcs and dwarves. This is not. I'm not going with the old style idea that the Neanderthals were lesser in intelligence or anything like that. Uh, a lot of the stuff I've read more recently says that they were just as intelligent as Homo sapiens and they got outcompeted in other ways. And even if that wasn't true, we're not doing that because we're not setting any of these these guys up as dumb barbarians any more than they would already be in for the age that they are in, which is to say not dumb, generally very sophisticated and a product of their age. Uh, the follow-up I wanted to do with that is there are no profoundly magical races at the beginning. So those immortal elves, dragonborn, if they show up, they're not there to begin with. They need, if they come in, they need a creation story. They need an origin. That's pretty much it with the uh, with them, uh, with the uh, the start work. Did divide the game up into eras. You'll see where it was like ancient, lost, classical, classical empires, medieval, renaissance. There's been a very little bit of work in fleshing out some of these areas because, again, I didn't want this to come in with the, anything more than a framework. But yeah, if you want to suggest new eras, if you want to suggest empires for eras, if you if you wanted to reshape it this this part's up in the like up for grabs um and the basic idea that, that i wanted was that each empire wherever it is however lost to time it is should have a characteristic they should have something they're a specialty at something that we we would want to go through their ruins to find something that hints at who they were where they came from possibly how they died and you know their role in the world what they left behind so that's generally what we're looking for at the moment. Uh, but I am not trying to lock this into one mode of thought. So does anybody? Uh, so uh, what, I want to get some initial thoughts before we begin. Why don't we, just to make sure this is proper for the actual recording and those who listen after, after introduce ourselves first. Probably a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> just so people know, at home know that you are not alone talking to yourself into the world and the ethers broadcasting in the post-apocalypse and doing voices know. to represent the rest of us this, <laughs> is, this is radio free orc <laughs> I, if you had the muppets for each of us that would be a real end of a network way to take things down wouldn't it i'm not buying a webcam just to make puppets of you guys <laughs> <laughs> uh, i we already have on record the conversation that are the, the actually no dave this is an old brick joke, but I have to ask it now because it came up. Did you ever have the conversation with Chelsea about the Muppets in your closet? <laughs> she knows about them. <laughs> okay, then. And you're still married, so things are good. Yeah, that's encouraging. <laughs> so introductions? Do you two want to start with it being your show and all? <laughs> Dave, why don't you do your own formal one? Well, I am David Herman, a.k.a. Ramnesis of the Brothers Herman and the host of the podcast Otter Worlds. I am joined by... I'm Jared Zerf, writer, coach, and storytelling ghost of Here Be Tigers. I am Ken, one of Jared's oldest friends. We've known each other for about 30 years now. I think the reason yeah. that I am here has to do with A, having played a lot of games with him and Dave, and B, the fact that I majored in archaeology. You, out of anyone I know, have probably spent more time making imaginary worlds as a side project. And that's including myself. And... I'm Michael, also Dexter Online here. I'm basically here because uh, Ken has played in some of my one-shots and we've traded some world building back and forth. Tell us a little bit about what you run, just so people know. 
Sure. Uh, I currently run the Dark Star Vacant campaign. It's uh, Stars Without Number is the game system, and it is loosely premised on an old sci-fi TV show called Dark Matter, where a crew wakes up with no memories on a uh, very advanced ship, and they have to go through and figure out, A, why they have no memories, and B, why people don't like them. And that's the premise of my campaign. <laughs> it, it goes much, much deeper than that um, and deviates quite far from the show. But that is at least the starting premise. Yeah, I mean, the major reason I thought we should invite, I'm sorry, it was Michael. I didn't actually know until just now. Oh, that's quite fine. <laughs> was that he is running a camp. He's, he's got his main campaign, which is what he just described. And he has a number of separate one-shot uh, type events he's run with the characters being representatives of different groups within his universe doing things that his players would be hearing about on news streams and things like that. I think he's got the right idea for a discussion like this of how to run a game. Sounds to me also like we should have you on for a few episodes and what running that is like. I'd be uh, honored to, yeah, come back. I will uh, admit this is the first podcast I've ever been on. So if I'm a little bit quiet here, I'm just trying to feel my way in. That's okay. We will break your mind and reforge you by the time the night is done. That sounds painful, but I'm all for it. <laughs> all right. So, Dave, the first thing I wanted to say, uh, just looking at your ideas for ancient era civilizations. Yeah. Because this occurred to me when I was looking at the design document last night and hasn't really left me. Uh, calendar magic and something based around astrology of some kind are going to be inherently related since astrology and astronomy both uh, partake heavily of paying attention to the calendar. Oh, indeed. And uh, one of the lines that is in my notes that I like threw out, because again, it, I write random things down, was like one watches the stars and one follows them. But I'm not sure if that means anything. What was the abandoned Native American city built for Andor? Sun calendar. Is it Cahokia? Further down, like, middle Appalachians? Well, we don't really know what was going on in Cahokia, but it, there's a solid chance that they, like the majority of civilizations, paid close attention to this guy because they didn't have a lot else to watch at night. I guess my question is, since this world is a purely fictional world, it is not Earth, it is not not Earth, it is just a world in and of itself, what is it in the sky that they're observing that matters so much to them at the time? And it's worthwhile to note also that they don't have to be from the same region because this is a magical world. You know, in, in our world, we'd say these two civilizations might be separated by an ocean. That may be true here. They may be separated by something else as well. They have sentient bananas. Probably not that. <laughs> no, I think we did something close enough to that a while ago. So when you say very advanced, advanced how? I tried to leave the the word I wanted to put in here um, that I wanted that that I I deliberately left out of the document because I didn't want to bias the system is I I'm thinking of them as like you've got a Stone Age civilization and you've got some kind of like Atlantean style civilization but I don't want it to be Atlantis that's just too mundane comparatively. All right, so this actually puts us back in kind of the stars without number space I think. Um... The premise of Stars Without Number is that, like in the Foundation series, there was a galactic empire and it fell apart, with the result that people are in 
a variety of different situations and technological levels throughout the galaxy? That certainly could be the case. And there would be no problem with uh, whatever one of the civilizations being uh, from like another plane, another world, something like that. It'd be a great way of adding in a new group. Uh, I don't know. I didn't bring this up in the live stream. But if we want to add other groups, there are ways of doing it. We're not limited here. Premise ages ago, this might have been in the old Dungeon World for Google Plus Hangouts. Gives you an idea of how long ago. They wanted to run a fantasy game that had elements of science fiction or the ancient world from beyond or from the past. And they would eventually, essentially be fighting this wizard's discovery of gray goo, a matter that consumed everything, only to finally, upon arriving at the origin point, realize that none of their anti-magical rituals and practices worked because the problem was not at all in magic. It was a purely technological contrivance with which they had no familiarity whatsoever. We had a sort of similar discussion on the Stars Without Number server a while ago where somebody was suggesting that if... What was it? Nanite zombies? Remind me, Mike. It was nanite what? zombies, yeah. If, okay. if nanite zombies attacked a world uh, that was at the end of... What was it? Roughly World War One level technology? What would happen was the conversation? Yeah, they were trying to figure out what kind of TL3, it's a stars without number term, basically mean modern era technology. What would happen with modern era technology against uh, an infection of nanite swarm zombies? Taking it from the basis level of, you know, just one infected, how far would it go? So my conclusion, which was not um, universally popular, let's say, was that uh, the, the answer is war crimes or things that would have been war crimes if they had done them to people, eventually. I could see that. I'm going to bounce this back to Dave here. We talk about these two civilizations with a perhaps related sense of the cosmos or how that directs the way they should run their society. Are these existing within the same time, necessarily, or are these built upon the ruins, one upon the ruins of the other? The initial thought had been they existed at the same time. I do not have a pre like that. I'm not set on that one. Uh, but the the idea was that they um, I want to give these empires something to relate to, something to do. Uh, if this were if I were going to do two separate ones, I'd kind of split the ancient era. We have two societies that are that divided, but share a fundamental sense of how the world is supposed to work or how you're supposed to de define from that, right? There's got to be a point at which the two of them split and go their separate ways, either in practice or in the sense of which end of the cosmos is the right end. Is it the praxis that they divide on, or is it the deity of the cosmology, cosmogony that they're well, splitting hairs over? And what Dave was saying earlier is they could very easily be divided by geography as well. I mean, hmm. Technology did not develop in literal and exact lockstep parallel throughout the entirety of our planet. There's no reason why it would here. Okay, so exactly. guess, let's bounce this over to Dex since he's been quiet. Pick two of the three there or suggest another one for us to work with. I actually am uh, going to follow with Ken on this one. Uh, just separate them by geological barriers, not geological, geographical barriers, and let them develop separately. The advanced one doesn't necessarily need to be advanced in every way. No, it, indeed it shouldn't be. In fact, it what, shouldn't be. What barriers are you seeing or are you thinking of now that you're following this path? Well, uh, oceans and mountains are obvious because they're very difficult to traverse. They're scary for exploration, especially if it's uh, – mountains are treacherous, obviously. But oceans have that sense of dread of 
you're in an open space. You don't know what else is out there until somebody has been and told you. So I feel like oceans and mountains make clear and consistent barriers uh, right up until the point that somebody finally does cross that bridge. So I'm going to say, just in view of real-world parallels, um, a focus on the sky suggests that oceans are probably the more relevant barrier. That sounds reasonable. A focus on the skies also means it's a barrier that's going to be more easily is not the term, but it's more directly overcome by the tools that they have. So maybe it sounds like they are on a world that is many smaller continents separated by vast oceans. Sounds reasonable. And that does give uh, some room for the very, very distinct separation of genetic drift, genetic uh, differences between these different peoples. It also sets up something very well for um, a later time period, which uh, I had a brief flesh out for. So let's ask a different but related question. If one of these civilizations is ahead of the other, why? I would say resources. Um, You've got uh, in your initial write up here, uh, the Hobbs are nomads. Nomads tend to develop things that help them move, that are on the go. The fen in deep forests and swamps, which are not the the greatest for, uh, at least in my fantasy understanding, structural integrity. You don't get the strong structures that help you build things that are heavy, that that need that foundation. And uh, the talls are up there in the mountains and the Northlands. This kind of leads to the humes thriving near rivers, lakes, and shorelines, those are the best resource places. Well, they're the best resource places in the real world. I'm going to invoke the existence of magic. This is a fantasy setting, but you're not wrong. It does go back to the question of how and what you can work with, right, to Ken's point. If one of these civilizations is is heavily based in calendar magic, that implies but does not guarantee that it's heavily agrarian. You start developing agriculture, and now you're, uh, you're on the way to steam, you're already starting to develop uh, the tools that you need to put more power, more work into things. Another frequent uh, pairing of advanced civilizations versus not is the idea that domesticable animals matter a lot for technology. Mm. One of the leading theories for why the civilizations in the Americas just did not reach the same technological accomplishments of pretty much everybody else in the Eurasian continent is because they didn't have anything they could domesticate, really, other than guinea pigs and sort of turkeys and llamas. I guess we're looking at a certain level of diverge of divergence in terms of what various peoples here consider technology and where those advances and what directions those push them toward. If you have the calendar folk, if you have the astrology or astrology and astronomy folk, navigation technologies, fishing deep sea mining or anything that's going to allow them to pull more out of the water or expand further out. It feels like the navigation-oriented and externally focused civilization is going to be more expansionistic over time as they look for the places that are going to provide them with the resources, whether those resources are occupied by others or not, to do more of what they are moving into and why. So, Well, this is a cheat. Yeah, right. But what if the really adv- the advanced early civilization is actually 
as advanced as it is because they have discovered the ruins of some even older civilization. Which would probably be in something like swamp, forest, or the far-off abandoned plains, places where no one's been for a long time. Well, my picture here is of uh, people voyaging around in the ocean to find the relics of something, right? Okay, so this is kind of like sometimes how we envision the post-apocalyptic earth where everything's flooded over and it's salvaging of old relics and wonders and then the right. rehabilitation and construction of that. Whereas you have another uh, ancient civilization essentially playing the game by the rules, honestly, with you know megaliths and calendar tracking and agriculture on probably a more contiguous geographical area. Here's a twist then. Do they find the fuel for the things that are discovered below the sea or do they have to go elsewhere for whatever should power that? I don't know if it's a matter of fuel. I think it might be a matter less of resources and more of there really are only a certain number of whatever these things are that they're collecting. Mm. That would make sense with the advanced one having being relatively small, powerful, but small, and essentially running on long-term borrowed time. Right, because as things break down, they don't have the capacity to repair them well enough right. or make more. So as an example, right, suppose that they are finding golems on these islands. Okay. Having robots in the Stone Age would short-circuit uh, technology and technological development pretty much completely, right? Tremendous labor force doesn't need to be fed, just needs some maintenance or storage. Right, but there's only so many golems, so your output is inherently limited by how many of them there are, and also how creatively you can apply them. This implies something about this empire's development. Early on, when golems seem plentiful or they have what they need, they're going to direct their goals towards other things. So they may be using old technology, but they will be thriving in a, in a way specific to them. But as their golems start either breaking down or they're, they're using more than they have the golems to create, now their efforts start being towards acquiring new golems or requiring replacements. That could actually explain how these two empires, if they relate, start coming into conflict because the obvious replacement for golems is labor. Other things that are as functionally close to them as possible. I do, however, see, by the way, the discarded golems or pieces of them forming some kind of final or abandoned seawall as a last ditch thing. So I mean, this empire's good. I have to imagine this is a question or a suggestion that answers the what are you looking for in these people's ruins question as mm -hmm. well, right? Because I mean, seriously, robots. Who doesn't want a robot? Representations of people that aren't people. Then what did they do and why? And why are they broken down or abandoned? I want to throw a semi-related tangent out here. It's just been, been bubbling in my mind. I'm really attracted to the idea that most of these ruins, the best ruins, are actually underwater. And that over time, as the ancient civilization uh, fell and sank partially because uh, the water uh, level of the world was rising so and I'm continents add, shifting. I'm going to add to this then. If, it's, if they do need to, in fact, replace the golems, it's not just the physical capacity, or rather it's not just the, the strength they're trying to replace there, it's the ability to breathe down in the depths. Mm, yeah, that adds another resource that they have to collect. So either there's got to be some technology, some mineral, some magic, or some peoples, right, or some combinations of them that... They are, for instance, are they recruiting, quote-unquote, capturing a deep-sea diving, fishing people off the reefs of other far-flung reaches? Are they simply people who can or have tremendous lung capacity or the magics or powers or through whatever means they do, the ability to go down deeper than this society does and salvage and find? 
in this development, the Humes could actually be the subjugated race, having developed and thrived near rivers, lakes, shorelines. They're already so familiar with the ocean, they've probably done some deep sea, uh, deep fishing. They dive already. They've already developed their lung capacity to swim longer, certainly longer than the hobs, the fen, or the talls. I'm kind of envisioning the same thing dolphins do when they put sponges over their faces to survive some of the thermal vents in proximity to as a filter. Mm. I don't know if you're seeing my annotations, Dave, but I put breathing in the depth slash robots don't breathe. (laughs) (laughs) They do if they're in disguise. But I kind of like this idea. It does twist one of the classic fantasy tropes, which is the human empire subjugating everything. Mm-hmm. So who has the robots? That's a good question. Let's turn back to our, is it one of the four known or is it not previously unknown? That's the thing that's been occurring to me a lot because I, the entire time I've been wondering which of the four it's going to be. But this is so far back in the past and has proposing access to a resource that is running out that they either that either came from before or is no longer creatable. These could be something else that is lost to time. I, funnily enough, I actually had an idea for how gnomes would come into play, but they wouldn't be gnomes in the classical sense. They would be like small little creatures they'd just be variants of one of the other four well i mean i can invoke science fiction again and suggest a really obvious source for robots whatever ship put people on this planet to begin with right people die out robots are still there which takes us into this is not a well it is a spoiler but the game's been out near automata is one of their major twists you're fighting a world populated by robot beings and their creators as you discover soon are long gone the war they're fighting for their creators makes no sense at this point, but they're still programmed to. In that same sense, these could be servitor robots, right? The kind that are acclimated to doing and making things for whoever made them. When they redid Lost in Space, there was a similar premise, although I think the robots in that case were more combination explorer subjugator. Yeah, the Lost in Space new robots are weird and also very modular, which might be too much. I think yeah, these I need to be like very traditional, like 50s sci-fi, big bulky robots. I actually do I like think the big stone, yeah. golem kind of element to them. Yeah, sure, they're clearly mechanical, um, hypertech golem kind of things, but they should still be like golems. Okay, so this could be something simpler than what if, as in traditional lore, they are in fact spirits of some kind, elemental or otherwise bound to non-living materials, and it makes them the the process for that could be entirely technological, as far as we know. It's just lost to the folks now. And there's a will of some kind or an energy of some kind that is diminished over time or is Well, this also gives me a really interesting down-the-line idea, which is that somebody figures out how to make them again in the future. So I played the original Dragon Age, and they do explore the whole idea of golems the dwarves make to fight off the unending swarms. And the twist there, of course, is you find the forge, and it's that they make themselves into golems. I was about to suggest that one, actually, that the replacements, if you have this race being some kind of golems, but they can't replace themselves, they can't make themselves, but they can make replacement golems by stealing the souls of other sentient beings, and then those are the golems that they leave behind. That's the technology that can be discovered, not the technology of them themselves, but of their replacements. The proxies, the things, the people who didn't understand well enough to do right did poorly. It would certainly prove and create an interesting scenario if their entire body becomes consumed in the process. 
Now you've got these ancient peoples who have created uh, amazing structures now underwater and amazing technologies, these robots the the peoples are now trying to fight for, but there's no sign of those other people's uh, actual bodies except for those here and there that did not get turned into golems. And uh, that's the Mascarata, which was the whole kind of Venetian Italy dark fantasy with espionage as a, a thread to it. I'm forgetting forgetting the name of the people before, but they're all gone. However, the entire city is populated with these weird spirit-like creatures that are menacing, as well as these ancient relic-like masks that allow you to evoke elemental powers. And the twist there is that, yes, the people did eventually transcend, some willfully, some forcefully, and left everything they had been behind with no evidence as to why. And no way to get back either. Okay, so let's hypothesize that the people who are finding the golems are elves, because that just seems like an elf kind of thing to do, to tell you the truth. Except you get other people to do the dirty work for them. Yeah. <laughs> so, in, who played so are, we, are we presuming elves from outside, or are we presuming fen? Uh, well, I suppose it's technically the fen, right? But then what you get is, I assume, elves who have golems and elves who don't have golems for a class division. <laughs> that the earlier Fen were the ones who found the technology and used what they knew to work with, their more raw elemental materials to make a proxy of, and this is what's left of that. So early on, they would have gotten, they would have actually been able to speak to the, the ones that were really left behind. That's where they did the most of their learning, but of course, they, that can only take them so far. Well, okay, so what if um, it's less that they found the technology and more that they were conquered by the golems? How do you see that going? Uh, well, you know, if you find an immortal guy who's, you know, nine feet tall and can do more work than everybody else and can breathe underwater and so on, and you are in a Stone Age kind of mindset, I think you go ahead and start leaving that guy burnt offerings and otherwise trying to appease him and, you know, get him to leave you alone and or doing what he wants. So so less that the golems uh, went out and tried to conquer them, but that the, uh, that the Fen self-conquered? Yeah, I think that's probably more right. Like cats. Yeah. So the Fen are kind of doing this sort of cargo. Well, what it's originally, it, they approach it as a religion and it rapidly becomes a cargo cult. It might not even be a cargo cult. Maybe the golems are actually able to tell them, okay, so I need you guys to go ahead and get me like, uh, I don't know, about a thousand coconuts over there and some of that magic greenstone from that island over there. And the golems are actually running the show until the golems start to break down. At which point the Fen try to replace them. And that's the cargo cult I was talking about. It'd be so, even more interesting if they don't understand that what they're replacing them with was sentient or animate. Yeah, definitely. So they, they're taking in Thals and Humes and other folks like, but to them, their whole sense of the world fits them into non-animate creatures or non-minded things too. So yeah, it's just another resource that grows naturally in the world, another creature, another existence for you to harvest and domesticate. Well, I don't. I mean, if I'm an ancient golem from space, I probably don't have a lot of empathy for anybody who is still trying to figure out how to rub sticks together and make fire. Just saying. <laughs> that, okay, so Dave, I think we've answered the Empire, right? The one that actually builds up around a pivotal emperor figure. Even if it isn't at this point, the emperor who's lasted too long seems like either a golem or someone who's learned from that technology to try again. So we're talking about this this ancient empire. Well, first off, we should start having a name. So they're actually run by golems, but history is going to make the make it seem like they're run by Fen. Yeah, I mean, the stories are going to be about how the Fen called down their terrible gods to, you know, rain down fire and vengeance upon the Humes and things like that. Mm. That opens a door for the golems to have very, very fanciful uh, visages. 
you know, uh, samurai, uh, the Greek gods. If you watch, um, oh, what was that one movie? They'd be festooned and graven. Yeah, uh, they're, the they're no longer in just, Peru. Uh, I can, I can give you a lot. <laughs> <laughs> the golems might look really freaking scary. Our ancestors had really good imaginations for things that looked frightening. <laughs> yeah, and it would be elaborated on, but whatever the fans project onto them, in addition to whatever they began with, even if initially they were just simple facades. So by the time this shambling mountain comes down after the Fen have summoned it to remove you, yeah, it feels like a demon or a dragon or a terror or something otherworldly because there's no cognitive, there's no... Cognitive reference for, is the word you want. Yeah, that's what I'm going for. Yeah. There's, no, there's nothing in your world to describe or understand what this is and why it's here other than to destroy you. There's just a giant basaltic thing with the face of a jaguar smashing your village. That's terrible. Yeah. And I think that kind of does play up with the way that, in, I guess, more of kind of modern fantasy, sometimes the Aztec gods are depicted playing off a little bit of that Eldritch horror, too, where, yeah, this thing exists, it is almighty, it is powerful, but it's not here. It's not here to aid you, it is here because it is here. So this seems to be the, this seems to capture this empire pretty well. It'd be probably pretty good to have, uh, we've got a good idea of where they came from, where they're going like their culture and that kind of thing. We should probably come up with a name for them and what later generations are going to refer to them as. Well, Not- what are who, who's the linguist amongst us? Uh, what are some good old words for people walking, for non-people? I'm not necessarily sure that's what you end up with. Obviously, they had a name because you can't not have a name, right? In terms of a historical name or what people might know them as, maybe they don't know anything about them at all. And that's kind of where I was going with the non-people name is if the, the, the discoverers of this empire don't know their name because they can't read their writing or there are no writings that were actually left, then the discoverers are getting to name them. If you got golems telling you what to do, you might not need writing. Depends on how good their memory is. This is perhaps apocryphal, but one of the explanations for the word bear is that it doesn't refer to anything big or furry or specific. It just refers to some word that meant giant, large, sharp, angry paw or something else like. In other words, the thing you were most likely mm. to encounter meeting this creature that leaves an impression, that's what named, that's what eventually became the name for it. it wasn't big, white, shaggy thing or stone mountain <laughs> god monster, but ow, that thing hurts a lot. <laughs> so I think the historical name will depend in part on the context in which these guys are rediscovered in the future. Okay, so let's let's see let's leave that thread open to see who finds them. Well, that'll give a sense of. No, yeah. well, it brings up an interesting point to me. So one of the very brief notes when I put forward as a a hypothetical ending to this era these of these two empires is that something is summoned into this world, and whatever it is, it's powerful enough that it essentially ends this age, and most of the next age is dealing with the fact that this thing is now present. That and and that age pretty much ends when that thing is finally dealt with. That doesn't ha- that doesn't have to be the the case, but because we've got this very powerful empire that's going out and conquering people and grabbing taking them back for who knows what, uh, with their terrifying monsters that they can summon, it occurs to me that the calendar empire because it doesn't look like the 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 this golem empire really has anything to do with astrology anymore so this calendar i think they do because i think they i think they do because i think they live in islands okay they they do but that doesn't seem to be their magic that doesn't seem to be the major thing that you go through their ruins for they have it but they don't 
seen necessarily. Well, anyway, my, my point is maybe the other empire tries to summon something else from outside using what they know, and it goes very badly. Or it goes very right. Depends uh, on what they want. These are two questions from Nox Noctoris on the for, on the Discord forums, which might lead us to some answers here. One, would humans not eventually evolve in ways to become more viable in the ocean proper if all of their living resources and tech magic are coming from there? Two, if the golems are active underwater, would that not lead to humans escaping to the seas? In other words, wherever it's safest, would not the people oppressed go? Maybe. So, I mean, what I'm thinking, like I said before, is that probably the other empire in this era is living on an actual landmass. Something larger. Right. And so they're playing by, you know, the rules of civilization as we know them. Like I was saying earlier, they're probably living near rivers, doing agriculture, building monuments, developing monarchy, all of that very exciting stuff. This Um, is the mercantile one or the manifest, I think, as Dave has in the notes. Right. That's much later. Okay. So this this might be the precursors to that, what leads some of it fractioning off to or inspires it later on. But yeah, it sounds trade focused. Right. Which is going to mean that these guys are probably doing things like building megalithic monuments, eventually building pyramids or some semblance or ziggurats or something, you know? It would be delightful after hearing all these stories trickle in of the golem monsters and gods from there. If at some point one of their ziggurats or monuments or obelisk just rises out of the earth. It's well, not so a pyramid, it's a transformer. I mean, if you want to go full Zardoz here, they create a flying pyramid to destroy the golem guys. This is a game of of asking what if and following to why. I I think they might not understand why it happened, but I feel like it happens at some point. So what I think happens though is that these guys are, you know, following what we think of as the ordinary course of human development until they encounter the golem slaves who have run out of humes to enslave anywhere near them and have continued to expand island to island, you know, golem excavation to golem excavation, and finally come come onto the mainland looking for yet more slaves. And then they run into somebody who can actually put up a fight. Space has the resources, the means, and the desire. Right. What you get here, then, is some kind of in, is, is Cold War slash tribute mechanism because the, the these... Fen slash golems are capable of like enormous power um, uh, being projected into a small area, but their numbers are too small to fight a long and large scale, you know, across a large scale area. So it's that seems like it would naturally balance towards tribute payments. And yeah, we can destroy you and we won't if you give us this amount of stuff. And this amount of stuff is is small enough that you aren't going to outright rebel against us at the first chance you right. get. So, I mean, these are these are essentially Aztecs with magic statues at this yeah. point. And that's fine. I have, a, <laughs> I have a thought related to that. This might be a vulnerability, a weakness of them. The one society, highly agricultural, highly trade-bound, pays attention to the calendar because it determines the cycle of their life over the year. The other society, beholden to the magic deities from space, whatever we want to call them, right? The golems have to follow certain paths that are determined and predictable. So even though they're both studying the stars for different reasons, that knowledge, the the agrarian trade society's knowledge of the stars, when met with the encounter, when encountering the golems and their behaviors that are so rigid and predictable, begin to ascertain that there are paths and patterns these things, despite their power, have to follow, that they can be thwarted or redirected, even if they can't be fought head on. 
so they're going to defeat the golems first by analysis and second by manpower because presumably the society that actually has a real agricultural base and you know land is going to have more people i don't man i was thinking kind of glaives and you know care bear hugs (laughs) (laughs) and i don't think it's going to be like a, a definite like they know that they're analyzing. I just think it's going to be because they are so beholden to the stars and time periods, the ideas of there being important times yeah, um, could... ends up being very obvious to them. Those okay, premises so that's, exist, yeah. That's not giving that's... ancient people enough credit. If the golems only show up on the winter solstice or whatever, because that's when they can go, go collect tribute or that's when they can wander further from their islands, Within one or two occasions of it, anybody who's spending most of their time studying the sidereal calendar is going to notice. Oh, no, I'm not saying that they're stupid and they uh, like and that they, they didn't get that. What I'm saying is at, at, at this level of civilization, you're not going to have a ton of people who are just able to sit around and do nothing but like be act like scholars. But you're going to have a large, I mean, a lot of people who are quite knowledgeable about the sky because that is an important part of their life. So the uh, the explanations that occur to them naturally gel with the the golems a, a, as it turns out. They're definitely going to be putting two and two together. It just happens that they're very well situated to right, do in that. A sense. The initial the initial story from the first wave or two might be farmer's almanac language. When these things coincide, this happens, and this is something else that emerges now during that time. Applying the actual experience in addition to that, you can put two and two together and go, okay, yes, during these phases of the moon, stars align that direction, these paths, ley lines, whatever you want to call them, that we already use and know this is the way the world works, right? Our technology. And I think... Because that answers the question of fear. It's one thing when the gods come down to smite you. It's quite another when you know which way they take their step. Now, let me ask, because uh, I, I may have gotten myself mixed around here. Uh, you've typed in here that the calendar empire starts deciphering the time into the golems. But I thought it was the uh, astronomy, the astrology empire that was starting to analyze them. The astrology empire is the subjugated one, right? Uh, I've just been calling Calendar Empire the one that was agrarian that lived its life by the the calendar, etc. Uh, they're they're definitely the the Fen one. I don't know. That's why we need to have a name to call them uh, because I'd like to be to, it to be easier. Because yeah, they are both using a form of astrology, but the Calendar Empire is a lot closer to using the stars in a way that we understand. And the however the the, the Golem Empire is doing it, we're not entirely certain because it's more it's more in the Golems. Okay, so then that that twi- that puts me back on path. The calendar empire is the subjugated, more or less. They're the ones that have that greater incentive to have studied this and to see these things. And keep in mind, they don't necessarily need to decipher ways to defeat the golems. They just need to know when the golems are weakest or inactive, so that they can try to sabotage other things. I'm seeing a lot of guerrilla and Cold War tactics in this. Probably are in all likelihood defectors from both sides, to your point. Folks who now witnessing a different way of life choose to go otherwise. I was going to say, I don't necessarily think that the farm empire, which is what I'm going to call it, is going to be actually subjugated. I think attempted subjugation puts Mm. things onto a war footing, probably between the two. No, I think that's where the pay the pay's tribute is as close to subjugation as uh, they really get. But there's always going to be people uh, among those that are paying tribute that don't like that situation. 
Right. In fact, I would suggest that the natural evolution here is that if the farm empire isn't really an empire, but a collection of city-states, which was you know a much more common form of organization, that uh, they become an empire in order to stop having to pay tribute to the golems because somebody gets fed up and unites everybody to fight them. This galvanizes them, and this might ironically lead to the emperor of that who becomes the golem. <laughs> it's worth noting that if something like that happens, it w- especially in stories, it's going to be more along the lines of like an Iliad than an actual empire. Initially, yes, but eventually people are going to want a king or an emperor or queens. A person to tell them what to do because... Having too many people tell them what to do before was very deeply confusing right. and then monsters came. And my suspicion would be <laughs> that whoever actually unites the city-states is going to be from somebody who's not paying any tributes to the golems because that way they have the resources to do it. So someone further inland, someone in the mountains per se? like the tolls, Inland perhaps. or otherwise yeah. remote from we're coming to your farm and we're going to take your people and sacrifice them to our horrible stone gods. Like if the Fen are coming from the south, it's going to be somebody from the north who finally gets their act together. You get the idea. Ross Giants. That <laughs> would be funny. <laughs> In a sense, they're sex. Well, they are. They're bigger. I mean, the, a lot of the, hairier, yeah. A number of us here would be probably considered giants, at least in some way by the people of like the ancient world, just because our diets allowed us to grow quite a bit taller. Uh, you wouldn't normally get people getting into the six foot range. Granted, the real giants were probably either, you know, would be taller than that. I'm not trying to say, you know, but I, I think over time and over, you know, over history, we've in, in the mythology, we've assumed when people say giant, they mean 20, 30 feet tall people. But they could have just been seven or eight feet tall. Goliath, I think they started to do some projection on is around maybe six or seven. Yeah. Because at average height of four and a half to five, that's terrifying. Yeah. And yeah. so the Frost Giants, these people from the frozen north who are already written to be bigger than everyone else, it would be fun to put this down as united by the Frost Giants. That's what they would seem like. They're bearded and hairy and cold and have strange animals and smell and have strange ways. But man, they fight. And I guess the question is, how many of them stay afterwards, right? probably plenty would go back having kept whatever is coming into their land from going there and return to their way of life but some so are they just reactive defenders i feel like there's some cross-pollination after that some folks always well, stay behind i mean historically in a lot of instances uh bohemia it happened in babylon a couple of times it happened in greece as far as we can tell an invading bunch of people will end up the ruling class superimposed on the uh pre-existing population let's say Hungary is another good place where it happened. Yeah, it is possible the Frost Giants, as we'll call them, decide this is ours too now. Right. Maybe they unite everybody and decide, okay, great, now we're in charge. We want it for you. Why wouldn't we be? I mean, it's still, and effectively for that time period, that's still a form of tribute, uh, that the the way they rule, but it's less. um, And and it's not as terrifying when... uh, you know. Sure, because this could be your seat here of the justice and honor and ritual and premise-bound population. They have, since it is a it is a harsh environment, typically, well, using analogs of our own world here, humans in harsh environments tend to have very strong rules around hospitality, conflict, and the like, because resources are more limited spaces, are, good spaces harder to find. So if there's going to be blood spilled, there's a reason why. I'd say probably the other thing that happens is that the... Uh... 
uniting of the farm civilization is pretty strictly temporary once the threat's over. So they break back out into city-states or slightly larger states? Probably. And very likely they're going to have to go ahead and have an enormous and horrible war between them after not too much of that. And that sounds like that would lead into um, the mercantile that you've got later on. Yeah, just remember that there's probably a couple, there's probably at least a thousand years between this time period and the the mercantile empires. This would be a Stone Age, a Stone Age conflict, largely. And the 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 three empires, the the mandate. I think this is the this may be a Stone Age conflict, but I think it's probably resolved in something closer to the Bronze Age. I, I agree with that. My my point is though that the the mercantile, the mandate, and the the manifest empires were envisioned to be like around the rough time period of like Rome and China. But Rome and China are themselves thousands of year old years old with roots and th- and principles that began back. True, mm-hmm. but remember that the Bronze Age as it were, if you want to call it that, lasted for a very long time. Um, and we don't have a lot of history for a lot of it. Right. No, but that, that very long time is enough time for these different city-states or slightly larger states to solidify their power base and then become their own individual mercantile capitals and just grow into that. They've, they've already got the agricultural knowledge. They've been subjugated and... They've had to pay tribute to two different empires uh, as they're as they're developing. Money is already what they know. Yeah, I mean, and just you know, for historical example, you can't have Rome without Persia. You can't have Persia without Assyria, and so on and so forth. The state idea keeps growing and growing, but also requires somebody to enforce it. So it sounds like what we're seeing here are the first iterations of things that will eventually have a more defined form. They might dabble in mandate or manifest alongside the mercantile but they will lean toward what if uh in their their obviously their their tributes are in kind they're not in money at this stage but what if that's what actually leads them to start developing money coins they they want something that they can trade between each other that feels less like it's going to take away from their next tribute that's reasonable, especially if they're being asked to dig up like metals and other things that they don't have a use for yet. They're going to figure out that those things are valuable. If I recall correctly, gold started being a unit of trade when people realized and figured out a way of purifying it and knowing how pure it was. You and I, Dave, have done an entire, I think, almost two hour conversation on the powers and purposes of currency <laughs> <laughs> and how. Faith and religion and principle and practice and trade can all be bound into representations and who gets to say what the value of a thing is. All right. So we have our prehistory conflict, let's call it. Yes. Probably bleeding into the historical era. So, right. What ends it is actually where I was going to go to. I think your flying pyramid can happen. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like a good way to go out with a bang. Because then all people find find afterwards is the is the pyramid, right, or pieces of. Well, no, the, the, the story is going to be that you know King Ashurbanazar or whatever, right, has built the built the built the flying pyramid and drove the terrible masters of the Fen back into the waves or something like that. Well, how about this? What if King uh, Banana didn't actually build it, but discovered it and uh, spent decades of his life trying to figure out its secrets, how to power it. And what it really was, was an ancient device 
that finally releases these spirits that have been inhabiting the golems this entire time, releases the spirits. So now the golems have all gone inert, powered only by whatever little bit of a, a coating or residual spirit, you know, the, the, the memories of the ghost, so to speak. That's left I mean, behind in it. Okay. In pillars of eternity. Well, there's, there's, yeah. Oh, Go sorry. Ahead. There's one other thing that occurs to me. Here you've got this now united empire of a very agrarian civilization that depends heavily on calendar magic. Because it's specifically calendar magic and not just calendar knowledge as we know it, that implies that it can go further than what we know. And one of the things that that, that, that means is maybe they fundamentally changed the seasons. Maybe they unleashed winter. Oh, something like that. I was thinking on a similar line where maybe it's not a flying pyramid, okay? Maybe it's just a really big pyramid that because of how it was structured and because of the subsidiary structures around it and so forth, blows out all the golems, short circuits them. Well, let's not do a pyramid. Let's do a a series of uh, absolutely gigantic, tall, uh, tall tall-wise, massively tall monoliths. Monolith obelisk, yeah. There's a, there's an infrastructure that is either found or assembled at immense expense over time. It'll bankrupt the empire, as it were. And I don't think this king came up with it himself because that w- that's just not how kings roll. I think this king either got adventurers to come up with it, or <laughs> bankrolled whoever did come up with it. Well, he was busy doing you know king stuff, fighting golems and so forth, finding ways to become immortal, have more lives. I mean, maybe this dude actually had everybody's welfare, you know, in mind when he came up with the plan. Maybe he didn't, but I don't think he, like, cooked it up himself. It's just not the sort of thing kings do. They're busy. I mean, roughly speaking, you with every empire, you can point it out as evil in some ways. And you can point it out as good in some ways, but every empire should. You should be able to point out and say, oh, yeah, they did things we'd never do today. But the one that broke the sky. <laughs> the one that broke the sky and turned the land into eternal winter for however many hundreds of years. I mean, it doesn't even have to be winter. If you want the golems to get drowned, it needs to be summer. Global oh, warming is a weapon true. of mass destruction. Okay. Persistent exposure of flood of sunlight, drying out everything, turning that entire region arid. Oh. Well, turning the some regions arid, but also increasing the oceans. Maybe the what was their landmass, their continent, got split. Drowned out the invaders in the meantime. Hmm. So it and now you've it. also got uh, future ruins that are underwater from a newer era. Well, the, the other <laughs> thing cool. is, if, you, if you're living on the seacoast, you are very dependent on currents to bring nutrients to the nearby shore so that the fish can actually do what fish do, right? So he doesn't even have to split. If he does split the continents, so it may just mean that the fennel starved. Split the continents, it could just be that it alters the gravity or the currents themselves. Maybe enough. nobody's actually 100% sure what he did, but... <laughs> That's part of it, yes. Yeah, uh, it definitely caused a lot of really drastic changes in the world. <laughs> so, a uh, cycle so of Iran... So would the phrase, a, broke the world, apply? Yes. Yes. Cycle of Iran <laughs> has a, uh, a cosmology where there are two energy sources, ether and nether, and every few X many thousands of years, the nether coalesces into this non-star of power that can will grant essentially a wish because it is pure raw, you know, generative primordial energy that can be shaped into a thing. But the consequences of using it are always disastrous, right? It's not even a monkey's paw. It's just you gather a lot of energy into one place and then you let it go and it'll do whatever it does. Right. And I think we all know that in a scenario like this, the vizier put him up to it. 
So that's all for tonight, though you can join us in two weeks' time for the second half, where we decide what becomes of a world in which the gods no longer reside. A good story can excite us, yes. But the best ones, fiction or not, compel, inspire, or drive us toward the hope that we need for a better life. Remember, you don't need to know everything right now, but you do need to write. So make sure to like, review, and subscribe to us at Here Be Tigers. And until next time, take life by the tail.